this time, if you've brought your Bibles with you, you can turn to our reading today, which is from the book of Genesis, chapter 38, verses 11 through 14. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one on the back of the seats or in the back of the room. And if anyone needs a Bible, please take one. They're free. Yes, yes. <laughs> Here is the reading from Genesis chapter 38, verses 11 to 14. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that he too would die like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Grace and peace to you, beloved. Oh, great. We have a word of the day from youth, from Shannon, and from Rose. Got it. Before we get started, does everyone have one of these? That's okay. Sarah is right here. If you don't have one, raise your hand, and Sarah will help us. Thank you so much, Sarah Davenport. Let's get the technology online here. I don't seem to have access to my slides. So if you could, uh, if you could help me with that, please. Thank you. That is one of about 17 gremlins that we have experienced this morning, and so we trust that God is present and at work, and this is going to be a beautiful service regardless, so please bear with us as we work to get our technology back online. Have your highlighter ready. Uh, for those of you who are worshiping online, if you would grab a highlighter or a pen to have with your Bibles, I hope you have your Bibles with you or you're using a Bible app. And if you want one of these highlighters, I'll be happy to make one available to you. Just let me know that you need it. So let's take a deep breath. And let us pray. Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight this morning, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We're good to go. Just before she turned four years old, our Olivia, whom you just heard speak just a moment ago, said, I am growing up, and then I will be in charge. 
And that statement lands more like a prediction than a goal. Olivia is often described as strong-willed, a natural leader, a force of nature. And I was discussing the reality of parenting such a child with my therapist the other day. And she smiled and said, huh, I wonder where she gets that. (laughs) Everything you just said about Olivia also describes you, she said. She gets it from you. We all wonder, don't we, what we get from our ancestors? For some, that thought could be troubling because of a difficult history and maybe even a permanent separation. For various reasons, many of our family origin stories remain a mystery. But our holy text tells us that as followers of Jesus, we have all been grafted into the family of God. That means, at least in terms of our faith family, we share the same ancestry. During the season of Advent, we're going to explore that truth through a worship series titled Origin Story, The Mothers of Jesus. All of the gospel narratives in our Bible begin the story of Jesus in their own way. Matthew begins with a genealogy. So I invite you now to turn to your Bibles or the Bibles in the back of the chairs in front of you. Go ahead, you have time. Matthew chapter 1. I invite you to do the same if you're worshiping at home. Have your highlighters ready as well. Please turn to Matthew chapter 1 and just take a look at verses 1 through 17. Now, we're not going to read all of these verses together this morning, but I want you to know where to find Matthew's genealogy. And I'd like you to bookmark this page somehow because we're going to be referring to this list of names for the next several weeks. Keep your highlighter handy, too, because you might want to mark something that stands out to you, something you want to remember as we take a look at different passages. You can think of these highlighters as serving a similar purpose as our Advent candles to illuminate the coming of Christ in our world and in our hearts and in our minds once more. So as we look at Matthew's genealogy, you can see that Jesus' lineage is traced back to Abraham through 42 generations and the mention of 47 people. These additional five people are women, noted alongside the men with whom they bore children. But it is extremely unusual that female names would be included at all. So we must ask ourselves, why would Matthew do such a thing? We know for sure that the main purpose of the genealogy is to establish the line of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. That's why we're given this line in verse 17. Thus there were 14 generations and all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. This might be a line that you want to highlight. Verse 17 in chapter 1 of Matthew. It's foundational. It's foundational not just to this series, but to our faith as well. It ties the birth of Jesus to some of the prophecies that we read even just last week during our Hanging of the Green services. Ancient words such as those from Jeremiah, the days surely are coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king. 
and others from Isaiah. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. Great will be his authority, and there shall be endless peace on the throne of David and his kingdom. Both of these texts connect Jesus to David and beyond, pointing to the Hebrew people's long time of waiting for the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And that's the meaning of the season of Advent. The word Advent means arrival. And in our tradition, this is a season of preparation for the birth, the arrival of the Christ child. Advent begins four Sundays before Christmas. Christmas Eve actually begins the season of Christmas, which lasts until the celebration of the gifts of the wise men at Epiphany in the beginning of January. That's why it makes sense to leave up our decorations, at least through the first week of January, to, to sing Christmas songs that long as well. It's also why we at Morningstar are beginning Advent today, because Christmas Eve actually falls on a Sunday this year, and we didn't want to skip a Sunday of Advent, and we didn't want to squash it into a celebration of Christmas Eve. Because Advent is just as important as Christmas. Because when we rush through Advent, we miss the important parts of the narrative. We overlook key players in the redemption story of God's people. People like Tamar. Her story is found in Genesis chapter 38. So go ahead and turn back there now and put your finger on verse 11. We're going to read that passage again in just a moment. Tamar was married to a man named Ur. He was the son of Judah, who was also the great-grandson of Abraham. So there's that connection to the back to the beginning of genealogy. It wasn't long after they married that Ur died, leaving Tamar a widow. And it was the custom of the culture in those days for a widow to marry the next son in the line of the family. And so eventually Tamar married Onan. This was for her protection. In those days, a woman either lived unmarried in her father's house or married in her husband's house. Otherwise, she was considered to be less than human. She had no access to any sort of livelihood. So Tamar eventually marries Onan, but then Onan also dies. And so Tamar is promised to Shelah. So Tamar must wait because Shelah is not yet old enough to be married. So she's told to go back to her father's house. She sees a widow in her father's house, in an in-between space. Not fully ostracized, but not really a member of either family fully, certainly on the margins, with her fate hanging in the balance. So let's turn to Genesis 38 again, and we're going to look at that passage that Judy read for us this morning. Genesis 38. We're going to read verse 11 all the way through 15 this time. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he feared that he too would die. Judah feared that Shelah would die, like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah's time of mourning was over, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. 
when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she put off her widow's garments, put on a veil, wrapped herself up, and sat down at the entrance of En-Aim, which is on the road to Timnah. She saw that Shelah was grown up, yet she had not been given to him in marriage. And when Judah saw her, he thought her to be a prostitute, for she had covered her face. For the sake of younger generations in the room, we will not talk about what happens next, but you can keep reading for the details. Now, Judah, not knowing Tamar's identity, gives her his staff and his signet ring, the seal of his family, as collateral for payment for their interaction. And when he returned home, he could not find Tamar to make the exchange. His sons tell him to leave it alone because he, they don't need the scandal. But scandal finds Judah anyway when Tamar turns up pregnant. And Judah's family immediately threatens Tamar with death for violating the terms of her widowhood. But she produces the staff in the ring of Judah, serving as proof that he is the father of her unborn child. She then becomes Judah's wife and actually bears twin sons to him. These are the sons, Perez and Zerah, who are mentioned along with Tamar and Judah in Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, this genealogy was written somewhere around the year 85 in the common era, but we know that the story of Tamar was told over and over and over again through the generations for her name to make it into the books. She's also mentioned in the story of Ruth, another woman listed later in the genealogy. So now turn your Bibles just one more. To Ruth, which is in the Old Testament, after Judges, before Samuel. Turn to Ruth chapter 4. As you're looking at that, I'll give you a little background here. You're looking for Ruth chapter 4, verse 12. Ruth had moved to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, after they had both been widowed in the land of Moab. With encouragement from Naomi, Ruth finds a place in the home and in the heart of a prominent man named Boaz. Before Ruth and Boaz are married, they are given a blessing. And we can read the exchange of the blessing in verses 7 through 12 in Ruth. But we're going to focus on verse 12 in chapter 4. You got it? Through the children that the Lord will give you by this young woman, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. It might be worth highlighting there that in this blessing of the marriage of Ruth, we find the name Tamar which seems fitting somehow because Ruth also chose some bold behavior to establish her place in the family of Boaz. In fact, all of the women listed in the genealogy of Jesus, including Mother Mary, are shrouded in suspicion and accusation regarding their morality, particularly their sexuality. And they are considered to be dishonest and even devious. And yet here they are, listed in the formal record of Jesus' genealogy, his pedigree, evidence to prove his lineage reaches all the way back to David, to Jesse, 
to the prophets of old. His foremothers could have been expunged from history. It happens often enough. And even so, their stories have been relegated to the sordid details that render their reputations questionable. So we must continue to ask the question, why would Matthew include them? I've been pondering this question for quite some time, and I've been seeing the face of my young daughter, Olivia. I've been listening to her confident voice and witnessing her strong actions and hearing the echo of the statement from my therapist. She gets it from somewhere. So did Jesus. We often talk about the power of his divinity as the son of God. We talk about his skill as a carpenter, learned from Joseph. About once a year, we'll give a nod to Mother Mary for his sense of justice and liberation. But on the whole, these women are typically remembered as sneaky and sultry and out to preserve their own necks. But it would serve us well, beloved, in this season of the year, but also in this season of life when we're groaning in misery over the violence in the world and longing for peace and an end to war and praying for freedom from oppression of every kind to consider what we can learn from the mothers of Jesus, from Tamar, from whom Jesus learned to challenge the letter of the law and to take risks to ensure the safety of the vulnerable. Jesus learned from Tamar to challenge the letter of the law and to take risks to ensure the safety of the vulnerable. We see it over and over again in his ministry. But for just one example, picture the story in John chapter 8, John chapter 8, when Jesus walks upon a crowd encircling a woman about to be stoned because she's been accused of adultery. Is it possible that Jesus saw in that woman's face a vision of Tamar, his ancestor? Could it be, could it be that the story of Tamar washed over Jesus, steadying him in the moment, enabling him to consider other aspects of her story that others just did not have eyes to see? Was the woman spared in part because Jesus' own heritage included a similar situation. Truly, as we look at the life of Jesus through the lens of odd female names in his genealogy, the origin story of our faith begins to glow with the power of women who would not and could not stay in their places. So for Tamar, the mother of Perez and Zerah, a mother of Jesus, a mother of our own faith, let us give thanks. Let us give thanks for Tamar's willingness to challenge the status quo and to take life-saving risks. And may we get that from her. Amen? Amen. I just couldn't work in basting. I'm sorry, Shannon and Rose. Basting. It's, it's timely, for sure. You can split a dollar. <laughs> no, big, big spender, big spender. 
Kids, I invite you to take the wooden cross out of your worship bags as we move into prayer. This cross reminds us that we are holding God's hand. God is holding ours, and we are connected with each other as we pray. Gracious and loving God, Emmanuel, God with us, truly in this Advent season, we celebrate that you are not hidden in some faraway cloud, but you chose to be with us in the blur and mystery of our lives, in the midst of lists and rush, you are with us as the song that echoes in our minds, as the light of a candle, as a card from a friend. They are signs of your presence. So we turn to you in this season and we pray that you would birth joy and healing, blessing and hope in us. Let something wonderful begin in us, something surprising, and holy, may your hand be upon us. Let your love fill us. Let your joy overwhelm us. Let our longing for you be met. Emmanuel, with us always. Amen. <laughs>